0: Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We're broadcasting from Coralville, Iowa. For more information about Life Church, to watch a live stream, or to find a campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right, so we're in this series called Eight Hills, where we've been talking about our values, and we've been doing this now for it's been about nine weeks that we've been in this series. And so you're probably saying, okay, Rich, let's just move on now. Let's go to something different because it's getting kind of routine. But, but, uh, it's very important that we discuss the values of this church. And part of it, and obviously the values come from, are, are informed by scripture. So we read the scripture and we, we hear about what the, what God's word says concerning the value, but it's very important because one of the things that we believe here at Life Church is that God has placed us here for a purpose and a reason. and and God has placed, and there are many other great churches in this town, and God has placed them there for a purpose and a reason, a unique purpose and a reason for them, a unique purpose and a reason for us. For all of us, it's about expanding the kingdom of God. That's what we believe. We believe that God has called us to expand God's kingdom, and he uses our uniqueness as a church to do that in certain ways here in, in this community. And so there are people in this community right now that are disconnected from Jesus Christ, that need Jesus in their life, and they need, Life Church has been sent for that purpose, it's just like that couple in Cedar Rapids we were talking about. That's why, we, that's why we are here. And so it's important that you understand what are the things that fuel us, what are the things that we feel are, that we feel strong, what are the hills that we're willing to die on? Today we're gonna look at our very last value, and it's everybody, is valuable. And I think on the, on the surface, I say everybody's valuable. And you're, you're going to say, of course, Rich, everybody is valuable. We're going to look at something in the scripture here in a second where it was obvious that not everybody feels that everybody is valuable. And how we as followers of Jesus Christ, especially those who want to be a part of a church that's alive and life-giving, we have to have this value that everybody's valuable. This is how the value goes. Each person is in some way a reflection of the heart of God. And This is intentional language. We didn't say some people. We didn't say those who sit in the first three rows of Life Church are, you know, that's not what we said. Each person, that means every person. I could have changed that out for every. Each person is in some ways a reflection of the heart of God. God has created them. It's God who gives them breath to breathe. It's God who's given them gifts and talents. If there are people outside of the... Uh, that aren't, aren't even followers of Jesus Christ who have a talent to make millions of dollars. It is God who gave them that talent to make millions of dollars. That's the reflection of the heart of God. Endowed with unique gifts and abilities and personality without whom the rest of us would be sorely lacking. And so the idea behind this is that there—that for God, everybody's valuable. And that for each other, we need each other because each, each one of us bring gifts, talents, and abilities into this community, and we need you. We need you. Now, even those values, the last value on our list, it's not the least important, okay? In fact, I think it's this value that kind of is, makes up the DNA of why and how we started Life Church from the very beginning. why we say around here, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. And I know that you've heard us say that many times, and sometimes you hear a slogan said over and over again just a slogan, that's all it is. But there's something very, very uh, profound about that statement for us. It's saying, it's declaring this, everybody is valued. Come just as you are because everybody's valuable. But then we also have this strong, firm belief that as you encounter Jesus Christ, as Jesus, as your life intersects the life of Jesus Christ, a transformation begins to happen. And you become more and more and more like Christ and less and less and less like this world and God begins to transform your life. And so we say, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. You become more and more like Jesus. And so it's so important for us to understand this, this, this value that we have, because I think in practice, we, we, like, we affirm this, we affirm that everybody's valuable, but I think the practice of it has been difficult over the centuries, over the millennia within the church. In fact, I think this has been resisted in many ways throughout the church, this idea of this insider-outsider. The church has tried really hard to be sometimes exclusive, selective. We are insiders, and there are those terrible people on the outside. And so we lead by that way, and so it's just so important for us to understand that this is not what Jesus came to set up. This is not how the church was intended to be. In fact, this whole insider-outsider paradigm is why when you came to the University of Iowa and took your freshman philosophy class and that professor sounded very convincing, it was probably why you said, yeah, I'm not going back to church anymore. It's probably why some of your parents at some point said, just threw up their hands and said, forget it, I'm not going back to church. It's probably why maybe some of you in this room right now, you're just recently coming back to church and it's been a long time since you've been in church because you had this idea and so many people have this idea that, that they want a relationship, with they believe in God, they want a relationship with God, but they're not exactly sure, they doubt whether they can actually find it in the church. I'm convinced that you can. And I'm convinced that you should. But we need to be that kind of church that believes that everybody is valuable. Okay? So about 20 or so years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's this controversy that surfaces in in the early church. Um, And this is what this controversy was about. It was about whether, like, who should be a part of the church? We're going to read it here in Acts 15 in a second. But they were discussing this question, who should be a part of the church? Who belongs in the church, right? There was other questions that they had. How good do you have to be to be a part of the church? Like, how holy do you have to be, right? How many rules do you have to keep to be a part of the church? How holy do you have to be to be a part of the church? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up before you can be accepted and be a part of the church? These are the, this was what the controversy was around. And the idea was, there are people outside of the church that, to be in the church, there's some rules that they have to follow. There's some things that they have to do to be in the church. Now, this controversy is understandable because those at the beginning, the early church, their newfound faith, it was basically to them, it was just an extension of Judaism. See, they were Jews themselves, and then they accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and so they were Moses followers, and now they became followers of Jesus as well. So it was understandable why they felt that way, Right? And it was the, the assumption they had is then if you accept Jesus as the Messiah, then obviously you accept Moses as a lawgiver. And that's how they viewed it. But the problem is, there was a whole bunch of non Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And they didn't know anything about Moses and the law. They were unaware of the Old Testament. They were unaware of all those things. And so people are coming along and they're telling them, hey, listen, before you can be a part of the church, you've got to memorize a few things. You've got to, you've got to change your life. So you've to jump through some hoops. You've got to do some things, changes in your life before you can actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the teaching that they were getting. And so maybe that's been your experience. Maybe you came along and you were broken and hurting and needy and somebody said, yeah, Jesus loves you, but <laughs> you got to do these things first. Now, hear me out. I'm not talking about uh, you know, changing our theology or that there's no demand. There's, there are definitely moral demands in Scripture. There are definitely things in Scripture that tell us that we need to live a certain lifestyle as followers of Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. But what happens is there's this wonderful idea of grace that gets dismissed when we talk so much about the, all, the, all the other moral demands. And so grace is really, really important for us to understand. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this very first. How many of you have ever been to a church business meeting? Raise your hand. Come on, that's all? Just five of you or ten of you? Most of you have probably been to a church business meeting, right? We're going to look at the very very, 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 very first church business meeting that ever happened in history. Okay. It happened in Acts chapter 15 and there's some huge takeaways in this passage of scripture. And I think one of the things that we're going to conclude from this is that everybody is valuable. Okay. In Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 1, it says this. Certain individuals came down from Judea. So Judea right now is kind of like the epicenter for Christianity at this point. You know, it's early on in the church. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch. And it says came down to Judea, to Antioch. Actually, Antioch's a little further north than Judea. But the idea here is that they're coming from like high ground down to the coast. So it's kind of, that's what they mean, going down. Uh, certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch. Antioch is this very important city. It's, a, it's the missionary city. It's where it started. It's where Gentiles began to believe in Jesus Christ, and it's where the, 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 the name Christian, you, you know, we use the word, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. That word Christian was first used in the city of, of Antioch. It says, certain of Jews came down from Judah to, to, to Antioch and were teaching the believers, and here's what they were teaching them, these, this message to these new Christians. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Can you imagine being in the church, I'm like, what? what? Say that again? Okay, you, you need surgery. Before you can be a Christian, like wait, wait, Paul, Paul didn't say anything about surgery. What are you talking about, right? So uh, you can just imagine their launch class. We have launch class going on right here, right now in our this room 100. Their launch class was only women. <laughs> the men were out in the parking lot saying, "Honey, I love Jesus, but <laughs> I don't know. This is this feels like a little bit too much. I am not exactly sure that I want to, uh, you know." I, I really love Jesus, but surgery, really? So, anyways, that's what's going on, right? And so, value here's what here's what's happening. Value is being ascribed to a person based on on external things, and particularly one big external thing, right? Having surgery. Verse two, it says, "This brought Paul." Now, Paul, you know, he's he's been going around telling these people, "Hey." Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. He's been telling come just as you are, but don't stay that way. He's not been telling them that they need to be circumcised. So this brought Paul and Barnabas, they're kind of a missionary team, into sharp dispute and debate with them, with these people who were saying you need to be circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed. The church there in Antioch appointed Paul and Barnabas, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, this question of whether they should be circumcised or not. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And so Paul shows up and he's like, hey guys, we have a very important conversation to have about some issues. But before I do that, let me just tell you God is moving. We've been preaching the gospel. We've been going from city to city. We've been planting churches. People are believing in Jesus Christ. They're embracing faith. They're embracing Jesus Christ. And I have not been telling them that they first have to be Moses followers before they can be Jesus followers. I have not been saying that to them. Verse five. Then some of the believers, this is really interesting. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees the Pharisees. Now, this is important. The Pharisees, um, if you read the Gospels, you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read the Gospels, you'll find these guys here. These guys were like the perennial bad guys in the Gospels. They were the ones who orchestrated the the, the crucifixion of Jesus. They kind of collaborated with the Roman government so that Jesus would be crucified, because they were jealous of him and stuff, right? I mean, they were like the they're like the Klingons of the Bible. They're the bad guys, okay? These are the Pharisees. These are the bad guys, right? And so then Jesus, he's crucified. He comes back to life again. And there's a few Pharisees that notice this and are like, whoa, this is messing with all of our categories. Like if he really was just not the Messiah, if he was really an imposter, then he would not be back to life again. And we don't, man, it's just messing with us. And so they began to believe, and they joined the church. But for them, remember, for them, this was just an extension of Judaism. For them, they were just followers of, of Moses, and now they are adding, we're just followers of Jesus Christ, right? Verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, here's their message, here's their argument, the Gentiles must be circumcised and be, and be required to keep the law of Moses. This is the, they're putting their foot down. They're saying this, is, and they're so convinced of it. And when they say they need to follow the law of Moses, they're not just talking about the 10 commandments. That's the law of Moses. But they're also talking about the 613 other laws that have been, had been written down that basically regulated all of life for a Jew. And what they're saying is if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you first have to be a follower. You first have to follow all of the law. And in essence, what they're saying is your value to God and to the church is only as good as your ability to follow these rules. But we believe everybody's valuable. Now we hear this, and I'm sure that you, as I'm saying this, you know, when I say your value to God is only as good as your ability to follow rules, I think most of us are offended by that statement. Most of us say, no, that's not true. That's so wrong. But before we become too judgmental about those Pharisees, we have to understand that we do that as well. We jump into church and we find our little group and we're part of this church for a long time and before long I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go out with girls who do and all that and this is my, and you know, and you shouldn't either. Right? And we become a little bit pharisaical in our own viewpoint. Verse seven. <clears throat> After much discussion, I know words, this is was a long meeting, a long church business meeting After much discussion, Peter, and Peter at this point, he's like the superintendent of the church. He's like the leader of the church, okay? Jesus said, Peter, you're going to lead this thing. And so Peter's leading this thing, right? And then James is also the brother of Jesus. He's also in leadership. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And he says, brothers, you know how that, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. Like Peter's giving a little bit of recent history. He says, remember? Remember, I'm the first one to preach to the Gentiles. Remember that vision I had, that dream I had? I don't know, I was on this housetop, and I was in a trance, and, and suddenly, you know, the Lord came and said, hey, Peter, eat this macrib sandwich. And I'm like, I don't eat McRib sandwiches. It's pork, and I can't eat that stuff, you know? And, and, Peter, and God's like, yes, but I've made it all clean. It's okay. Okay, just so you know, go back and read Acts chapter 10. It doesn't say McRib sandwich, but... It's talking about all kinds of food that they were not supposed to eat, right? And, and next thing you know, Peter is at Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and, and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So he's telling them, that, he's telling them this story, and they're like, oh yeah, I do, I do remember that story. Because it's kind of vague, I do remember that story. And then he says this in verse eight, and this is a super important phrase, okay? God who knows the heart... Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God knows your heart? No, seriously, do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows, okay, God knows your heart. Do you believe God knows the the heart of the person sitting next to you? Of course you do. This is a super important statement. God who knows the heart. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit Giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. You see, I don't, I don't know your heart. I know your behavior, but I don't know your heart. I don't know your heart. I, I know that your body's all tattooed up, but I don't know your heart. I know, I don't know your heart, but I know that you don't. Maintain your yard well enough, and don't you know that we have rules in our neighborhood and you should maintain your yard? What's wrong with you? God who knows the heart, God knows the heart. God knows the heart. This is something that we need to really embrace. God knows the heart. Verse 8 he goes, "And God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them, these law-breaking people, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us and they. Audiences listening, are like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember, I remember that happening. Verse 9, he, talking about God, did not discriminate between us and them. We kind of like when we read scripture, when we, read, we just kind of like fly over things just because we assume stuff. He did not discriminate between us and them. This us and them is the insider outsider paradigm that so often is happening in church. God did not discriminate between Jews and Gentiles remember the Gentiles were people that were not part of the faith for a Jewish person he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith he purified their hearts by faith to which these Pharisees are thinking, wait a minute, yeah, God may have purified their hearts, but man, they've got some nasty habits. Their dietary habits, their eating, their, their dress, you know, all is it's so offensive. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Why are you trying to make them do things that you're not even doing? Like I just, I'm ha- you know, I have these, I, so when I read scripture, I try to like personalize it a little bit because sometimes you can read scripture and you can just gloss over it and you don't really catch the nuances that are in there. And, and so I try to imagine like an actual audience, right? And Peter's talking to an audience and he sees Dave back there and he's, like, hey Dave, <laughs> good to see you. Dave, don't, don't ignore me. I'm talking to you. <laughs> uh, Didn't I see you going into the temple the other day and offering up a sin offering? Dave's like, yeah, sheepishly, Yeah, 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 I did. Now, Dave, you, you sin? He said, yeah, I sometimes kind of mess up. You know, I slip up a little bit here and there. And so Peter's like, we all do. We all slip up. We all mess up. We all sin. In fact, we're all sinners who have been saved by grace. Every one of us. And so why are we requiring something of others who don't even know the law? Why are we requiring them to do things that we ourselves cannot even do? That's what Peter's basically telling them. Verse 11. No, this is his response. No, we believe it is through the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. This is how we are saved. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. Through his grace. In fact, it's a good exercise for us to remember this. Not a single one of us in this room, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, not a single one of us got to get to that place because I was good enough. Because I was smart enough. Because I was holy enough. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't sin that much. Or sin at all. Every one of us are here worshiping Jesus as followers of him because of his grace and his grace alone. It is his grace that allows us to... Take a big, deeper breath, deep breath of air and actually be able to breathe today, just as grace. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, because God knows the heart. See, I don't know if you understand this, but God can purify your heart before you purify your life. God can purify your heart before you purify your life. God can purify your heart before you drop, drop that nasty habit. God can purify your heart before you, you fix your marriage. God can purify your heart before you, you know, f- face the fact of all those insecurities you have that are causing you to make some destructive decisions in your life. God can purify your heart. That's how you have entrance into the kingdom. And that's why we say around here, come just as you are, but don't stay that way just as you are, but don't stay, stay that way. Now, Peter says a whole lot more, but I want to end with, with what James says in this whole church business meeting that we're looking at. <clears throat> okay, James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, he stands up and he kind of comes to his conclusion. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, it is my judgment. In other words, I'm, I'm in charge here, so I'm making a decision. This is the decision. It is my judgment, therefore, that we okay. I love this phrase coming after, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. In other words, guys, I know that this is getting kind of messy, and sometimes it offends you. I realize that. But the reason we exist as a church is because there are people that are lost and disconnected and need a relationship with Jesus Christ and we don't want to make it hard for them to find Jesus. Let us not make it difficult for them. Verse 20, instead we should write to them. So they're gonna write to these new believers in Antioch. We'll write to them and he's gonna say to them, telling them to abstain. Okay, now remember, there's 613 laws abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And so, again, let's get a mental picture here. There's a church secretary taking notes of the, of the church meeting, and he's writing down, and he's like, okay, this, and that, okay, that's three, what else? That's all. You, you mean you've, you've reduced 613 commandments down to just three? It's not even three, it's actually only two. It's, it's, try not to offend the Jews with religious rituals of your past. That's the first, first one they're telling you not to do. In other words, there are things that you do, like, you know, if, when you worship those idols, you, you don't do that anymore. You're following Jesus Christ now. Don't do that anymore. And I know you like blood sausages, but please don't eat that in front of a Jewish person. It'll, it'll gross them out. So don't do that. And then the second one is abstain from sexual immorality. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, don't defile... You're the temple of God. Upstate for sexual immorality. That's it. Verse 30. So they they were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So what was the encouraging message? You're valuable. You Gentiles in Antioch, you're valuable. You're important to God. God loves you, God cares for you. I think this interaction in the book of Acts kind of challenges us in three different ways. I'm going to read these quickly because our time's almost up, but uh, the first challenge is that we need to resist, we need to resist the gravitational pull toward insider and away from the outsider. There is a gravitational pull. When I say gra- I'm using the word intentionally, gravitational pull, because you can't control gravity, right? Gravity just does, happens. It's pulling you, and we need to resist it. We need to resist this gravitational pull that pulls us into only focusing on the insiders and forgetting about the outsiders. There are people outside of these four walls right now, and you know what? Every single one of us in this room at one point we're an outsider and we are thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that actually changed our lives and brought us to be close to him. So we need to resist that gravitational pull toward insiders and away from outsiders. We need to resist the gravitational pull toward law and away from grace. I'm not talking about changing our theology. See, there's this natural drift of a church is to have a lot of policies and categories, right? We... we We want to have a a category for this. Last week, I talked about Peter, I mean, uh, Matthew, for example. When Matthew was a tax collector, Jesus walked up and said to Matthew, Matthew, come follow me. Like he's tax collecting, right? He's in the middle of sinning against his own people, he's in the middle of sinning against God, and Jesus walks up to Matthew and says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Matthew stands up and starts to follow, and then there's a few Pharisees around there, and even his disciples, immediately they start thinking in category and policy. Here's a category. categories. he's a tax collector, he's a sinner. No, 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 wait a minute. Let's categorize this person. He's a tax collector, he's a sinner. Policy, don't hang out with sinners. Don't hang out with tax collectors. And it's easy to think in terms of categories and policies. Because all you have to do is, Basically, send them a form, right? Fill it out. Oh, you don't fit. Sorry, you're out. But see, Jesus wasn't about categories and policies. Jesus was about conversations. He was about the messiness of a conversation. He was about inviting Matthew, a tax collector, into the circle and saying, hey, let's walk this journey together. Matthew, why do you do those things? How do you feel, Matthew? Do you feel like you've betrayed your people? Matthew's like, yeah, I do. Man, Matthew, just stop doing that then. It's a conversation. But here's the problem with that. The difference between categories and policies and conversations is that categories and policies are neat and easy. Conversations are messy. They're up and down, back and forth. But listen, a church that's okay with the messiness is going to experience this amazing mystical merger of uncompromised truth and fullness of grace. There's this tension between truth and grace that we as a church are called to to navigate. We're called to not make it difficult for them who are coming in, and still hold them to to the truth of the gospel. And the last thing I want us to resist is we need to resist preserving. We need to resist the gravitational pull towards preserving rather than advancing. I don't know if you ever started a business. Some of you might have. Um, You ever started a business? When you start a business, at the very beginning, you know there's a lot of promises, a lot of excitement about the you know your product or whatever you have. You're excited about it. You're going to get it out there. You're so 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 stoked about it. And then and then you start it, and it's easy to start it kind of because there's not a whole lot of risk. I mean, you're 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 risking, but you don't have a lot to lose because you have nothing, right? You don't have customers to lose. You don't have a product to lose. You. You don't have anything yet, but then, as your business moves along and it becomes more successful and more successful and suddenly you have you know a thousand customers and you have a product line, you have warehouses full of stuff, suddenly you're nervous about all this stuff, and you start trying to preserve it and so you become risk adverse you don't want to risk anymore, and you make sure you have enough insurance to cover everything and you and you're always looking out at your employees, making sure that everything's right because you don't want to, you don't want to lose something. And churches also kind of fall in that same category sometimes. When we first started Life Church sixteen years ago, all we had was a vision. We had no, we had no properties. We owned nothing. We had we didn't even have tithers. We had nothing. Like all we had was a vision. And it was easy to risk. You'd ask Chris, man, we could we could just Hey, good idea, let's do that. Yes, amen, we're gonna do that next week, you know. We didn't care. Because if, if we failed, we didn't lose very much. But then now, 16 years later, there's a church building, and there's land, and there's another campus, and there's people, and there's all that, and you become risk-adverse, and suddenly you want to preserve rather than advance. The, God, the gospel has never called us to preserve. It's only ever called us to advance the kingdom of God. And that's the challenge that we need to be aware of. We need to do ministry in this open-handed fashion and be willing to risk. So here's three commitments. I'm trying to end really quick. Here's our three commitments. Okay, with this idea, of these gravitational pulls, first of all, let's be bold. Let's be bold. Let's be bold. There are people... Let's not get too comfortable in our little club. There are people out there that need Jesus Christ. They need him desperately. And let's be bold to reach people who are far from Jesus. Secondly, let's err on the side of grace, okay? Let's err on the side of grace. I know there's truth that we need to be conscientious of, but let's err on the side of grace. And here's what gives me the, the, the solidness to actually ask you to do that. Aren't you glad, those of you in this room, aren't you glad that Jesus, that God erred on the side of grace when it comes to your story. I'm glad that 30-something years ago when I was this little 19-year-old drug drug kid that was selfish and sexual and all that stuff, I'm glad that he didn't look at me and say, oh, Rich, I like you, but you're not good enough right now, so I'm not going to choose you. I'm glad that he erred on the side of grace for me. And let's err on the side of grace for those around us. Let's not make it too difficult for them. Third commitment. Let's remain open-handed. Amen. <clears throat> there are a lot of people that God's working in their lives. And let's just be willing to serve them. This week I, I sat down with a young lady that um, on, on Monday for... Uh, lunch. She's a missionary going to North Dakota, to Fargo, to North Dakota State in Fargo, and um, she was wanting to talk to me about raising support for her for her mission and what she's doing, and I always, when I meet with missionaries, I always ask them, the first question is, I want to know your story. Tell me your story of faith. How did you come to Jesus? I want to know that. And uh, so she starts telling me that just two and a half years ago, three years ago, she was a student here at the University of Iowa, totally 100% into the party scene. And she went on to tell me, and she probably gave me more detail than I needed to hear, but she she's totally into the party scene here, right? And had grown up in a small town, Algona, had grown up in a small town, and you know, it kind of not really in church, divorced, family, broken family, all that kind of stuff, but uh, had, had a little group of friends that were part of a Lutheran church. And, um, and so she, when she came to Iowa, she just lost those friends, Felt lost and just got totally enveloped in the party scene here in Iowa, and that happened. And so she would live sometimes with this up and down of guilt. So one day she said to herself, "I just don't, I need to go to church. I need to go back to." Church. And then so she typed in non-denominational church because she didn't want to find a she didn't want to go to a Lutheran church. She was afraid that they would judge her. So she wanted to go to a non-denominational church. So she typed in non-denominational and she found Life Church, which were not non-denominational, but that's what she found. And so she comes. She shows up here and she's, these are her words Monday she said I walked through the doors and I felt like I was at home and I'm telling you, I sat there in that in that booth at, at Chili's and I just wanted to burst up bawling crying because that's what we want we don't want to create barriers we want people to come and feel at home and she, I walked in I felt at home and I sat in the service and I cried through the whole service I felt like God was speaking directly to me telling me that I needed to change my life and so she She responded to that. It was an emotional response because it was then six months of an up and down, up and down kind of roller coaster ride for her until one day she was in church and she said, and she repeated what I said this past Sunday that I had said back then, maybe three years ago, something like that. She said, uh, I, I said, spiritual growth happens best in the kitchen than at the dining table. And I encourage her to start, I uh, encourage people to start serving. And so she said, maybe I need to serve. And so she joined a serve team and she became part of the Welcome Center here. And it wasn't long before somebody came up to her and said, hey, you should, you should meet uh, Alyssa. And then Alyssa started discipling her. And now today, she's in North Dakota, in Fargo, North Dakota, saying, God, use my life, use my life, use my life. God wants to use us as a church to communicate this message far and wide, everybody's valuable. Come just as you are, but don't stay that way. Amen, let's all stand.